Welcome to episode 1T of the podcast Literature Soothingly Read. I'm Daniel Taylor, your host. Has it been a month? Time flies when you're having none, and none have I been having, gentle listener. No seafaring adventures to tide me over. A deficit I shall now put right. For Moby Dick returns. Last time, what a variety of subjects did we cover? Details of the Brit and Squid that roam the hoary depths, the thick line attached to the harpoons of the whaling crafts, the custom of whalemen in darting the beasts and how several harpoons are joined together by one line. These details encompassed a modicum of story, in which Stubb, second mate of the Pequod, as you recall, and his group of boatsmen and harpooners had managed to kill a monstrous whale. Chapter 64 Stubbs' Supper Stubbs' whale had been killed some distance from the ship. It was a calm, so forming a tandem of three boats, we commenced the slow business of towing the trophy to the Piquad. And now, as we eighteen men with our thirty-six arms and one hundred and eighty thumbs and fingers slowly toiled hour after hour upon that inert, sluggish corpse in the sea, and it seemed hardly to budge at all, except at long intervals, good evidence was hereby furnished of the enormousness of the mass we moved. For upon the great canal of Hangho, or whatever they call it, in China, Four or five laborers on the footpath will draw a bulky freighted junk at the rate of a mile an hour. But this grand argosy we towed heavily forged along, as if laden with pig lead in bulk. Darkness came on, but three lights up and down in the Pequod's main rigging dimly guided our way, till drawing nearer we saw Ahab dropping one of several more lanterns over the bulwarks. Vacantly eyeing the heaving whale for a moment, he issued the usual orders for securing it for the night, and then handing his lantern to a seaman, went his way into the cabin, and did not come forward again until morning. Though in overseeing the pursuit of this whale... Captain Ahab had evinced his customary activity, to call it so, yet now that the creature was dead, some vague dissatisfaction, or impatience, or despair seemed working in him, as if the sight of that dead body reminded him that Moby Dick was yet to be slain. And though a thousand other whales were brought to his ship, all that would not one jot advance his grand monomaniac object. Very soon you would have thought from the sound of the Pequod's decks that all hands were preparing to cast anchor in the deep, for heavy chains are being dragged along the deck and thrust rattling out of the portals. 
But by those clanking links, the vast corpse itself, not the ship, is to be moored. Tied by the head to the stern and by the tail to the bows, the whale now lies with its black hull close to the vessels, and seen through the darkness of the night which obscured the spars and rigging aloft, the two, ship and whale, seemed yoked together like colossal bullocks, whereof one reclines while the other remains standing. And there's a footnote here. A little item may as well be related here. The strongest and most reliable hold which the ship has upon the whale when moored alongside is by the flukes or tail. And as from its greater density, that part is relatively heavier than any other, excepting the side fins, its flexibility even in death causes it to sink low beneath the surface, so that with the hand you cannot get at it from the boat in order to put the chain round it. But this difficulty is ingeniously overcome. A strong, small line is prepared with a wooden float at its outer end and a weight in its middle, while the other end is secured to the ship. By adroit management the wooden float is made to rise on the other side of the mass, so that now having girdled the whale, the chain is readily made to follow suit. And being slipped along the body, it is at last locked fast round the smallest part of the tail, at the point of junction with its broad flukes or lobes. We now return to the main text. If moody Ahab was now all quiescence, at least so far as could be known on deck, Stubb, his second mate, flushed with conquest, betrayed an unusual but still good-natured excitement. Such an unwanted bustle was he in that the staid Starbuck, his official superior, quietly resigned to him for the time the sole management of affairs. One small helping cause of all this liveliness in Stubb was soon made strangely manifest. Stubb was a high liver. He was somewhat intemperately fond of the whale as a flavorish thing to his palate. A steak, a steak, ere I sleep. You, Dagoo, overboard you go and cut me one from his small. Here be it known that though these wild fishermen do not, as a general thing, and according to the great military maxim, make the enemy defray the current expenses of the war, at least before realizing the proceeds of the voyage, yet now and then you find some of these Nantucketers who have a genuine relish for that particular part of the sperm whale designated by Stubb, comprising the tapering extremity of the body. About midnight that steak was cut and cooked, and lighted by two lanterns of sperm oil, Stubb stoutly stood up to his spermacetti supper at the capstan head, as if that capstan were a sideboard. Nor was Stubb the only banqueter on whale's flesh that night. Mingling their mumblings with his own mastications, thousands on thousands of sharks, swarming round the dead leviathan, smackingly feasted on its fatness. The few sleepers below in their bunks were often startled by the sharp slapping of their tails against the hull, within a few inches of the sleepers' hearts. 
Peering over the side, you could just see them, as before you heard them wallowing in the sullen black waters and turning over on their backs as they scooped out huge globular pieces of the whale of the bigness of a human head. This particular feat of the shark seems all but miraculous. How? At such an apparently unassailable surface, they contrive to gouge out such symmetrical mouthfuls remains a part of the universal problem of all things. The mark they thus leave on the whale may best be likened to the hollow made by a carpenter in counter-sinking for a screw. Though amid all the smoking horrors and diabolism of a sea fight, sharks will be seen longingly gazing up to the ship's decks, like hungry dogs round a table where red meat is being carved, ready to bolt down every killed man that is tossed to them. And though while the valiant butchers over the deck table are thus cannibally carving each other's live meat with carving knives all gilded and tasseled, the sharks also with their jewel-hilted mouths, are quarrelsomely carving away under the table at the dead meat. And though were you to turn the whole affair upside down, it would still be pretty much the same thing, that is to say, a shocking, sharkish business enough for all parties. And though sharks also are the invariable outriders of all slave ships crossing the Atlantic, systematically trotting alongside to be handy in case a parcel is to be carried anywhere, or a dead slave to be decently buried. And though one or two other like instances might be set down, and touching the set terms, places, and occasions, when sharks do most socially congregate, and most hilariously feast, yet is there no conceivable time or occasion when you will find them in such countless numbers, and in gayer or more jovial spirits than around a dead sperm whale, moored by night to a whale ship at sea. If you have never seen that sight, then suspend your decision about the propriety of devil worship and the expediency of conciliating the devil. But as yet, Stubb heeded not the mumblings of the banquet that was going on so nigh him, and no more than the sharks heeded the smacking of his own epicurean lips. Cook, cook! "'Where is that old fleece?' he cried at length, widening his legs still further as if to form a more secure base for his supper, and at the same time darting his fork into the dish, as if stabbing with his lance. "'Cook! You cook! Sail this way, cook!' The old black, not in very high glee at having been previously roused from his warm hammock at a most unseasonable hour, came shambling along from his galley, for, like many old blacks, there was something the matter with his knee-pans, which he did not keep well scoured like his other pans. Uh, this old fleece, as they called him, came shuffling and limping along, assisting his step with his tongs, which after a clumsy fashion were made of straightened iron hoops. This old ebony floundered along in obedience to the word of command, came to a dead stop on the opposite side of Stubb's sideboard, when, with both hands folded before him and resting on his two-legged cane, he bowed his arched back still further over, at the same time sideways inclining his head, so as to bring his best ear into play. Cook! 
said Stubb, rapidly lifting a rather reddish morsel to his mouth. Don't you think this steak is rather overdone? You've been beating this steak too much, Cook. It's too tender. Don't I always say that to be good a whale steak must be tough? There are those sharks now over the side. Don't you see they prefer it tough and rare? What a shindy they are kicking up. Cook, go and talk to them. Tell them they are welcome to help themselves civilly and in moderation. But they must keep quiet. Blast me, I can hear my own voice. Away, Cook, and deliver my message. Here, take this lantern, snatching one from his sideboard. Now then, go and preach to them. Suddenly taking the offered lantern, Old Fleece limped across the deck to the bulwarks, and then with one hand dropping his light low over the sea so as to get a good view of his congregation. With the other hand he solemnly flourished his tongs, and leaning far over the side in a mumbling voice began addressing the sharks, while Stubb, softly crawling behind, overheard all that was said. Fellow critters, I was ordered here to say that you must stop that damn noise there. You hear? Stop that damn smacking of the lips. Master Stubb says that you can fill your damn bellies up to the hatchings. By God, you must stop that damn racket. Cook, here interposed Stubb, accompanying the word with a sudden slap on the shoulder. Cook, why damn your eyes? You mustn't swear that way when you're preaching. That's no way to convert sinners, Cook. Who dat? Then preach to him yourself, sullenly turning to go. No, Cook, go on, go on. Well then, beloved fellow critters. Right, exclaimed Stubb approvingly. Coax him to that. Try that. And Fleece continued. Though you is all sharks and by nature very voracious, yet I say to you, fellow critters, that that voraciousness... Uh, top that damn slappin' of the tail. How you take the here, suppose you keep up such a damn slappin' and bitin' there? Cook, cried Stubb, collaring him. I won't have that swearing. Talk to him gentlemanly. Once more the sermon proceeded. Your voraciousness, fellow critters, I don't blame you so much for. That is nature, and can't be helped. But to govern that wicked nature, that is the pint. You is shark, certain. But if you govern the shark in you, why, didn't you be angel? For all angel is nothing more than the shark well governed. Now look here, brethren. Just try once to be civil and helping yourselves from that whale. Don't be tearing the blubber out your neighbor's mouth, I say. Is not one shark did right as tutter to that whale? And by gar, none on you has the right to that whale. That whale belonged to someone else. I know some of you has very big mouth, bigger than others, but then the big mouth sometimes has the small belly, so that uh, the bigness of the mouth is not to swallow wide, but to bite off the blubber for the small fry of sharks that can't get to the scrounge to help themselves. Well done, old fleece, cried Stubb. That's Christianity. Go on. No use going on. The damn willins will keep us scrounging and slapping each other, Master Stubb. They don't hear one word. No use of preaching to such damn gluttons as you call them, uh, till their bellies is full and their bellies is bottomless. And when they do get them full, they won't hear you then. 
For then they sink in the sea, and go fast to sleep on the coral, and can't hear nothing at all, no more forever and ever. Upon my soul, I'm about of the same opinion. So give the benediction fleece, and I'll away to my supper. Upon this fleece, holding both hands over the fishy mob, raised his shrill voice and cried, Cussed fella critters, kick up the damnedest row as ever you can, fill your damn bellies till they burst, and then die. Now, cook, said Stubb, resuming his supper at the capstan. Stand just where you stood before, there, over against me, and pay particular attention. All attention, said Fleece, again stooping over upon his tongs in the desired position. Well, said Stubb, helping himself freely meanwhile, I shall now go back to the subject of this steak. In the first place, how old are you, cook? What did that do with the steak? said the old black testily. Silence! How old are you, cook? About ninety, they say, he gloomily muttered. And have you lived in this world hard upon one hundred years, cook, and don't know yet how to cook a whale steak? Rapidly bolting another mouthful at the last word, so that morsel seemed a continuation of the question. Where were you born, cook? Hind hatchway in ferry boat. Going over the Roanoke. Born in a ferry boat. That's queer, too. But I want to know what country you were born in, Cook. Didn't I say the Roanoke country? He cried sharply. No, you didn't, Cook. But I'll tell you what I'm coming to, Cook. You must go home and be born over again. You don't know how to cook a whale steak yet. Bless my soul if I cook another one. He growled angrily, turning round to depart. Come back, cook. Here, hand me those tongs. Now take that bit of steak there and tell me if you think that steak cooked as it should be. Take it, I say, holding the tongs towards him. Take it and taste it. Faintly smacking his withered lips over it for a moment, the old negro muttered, Best cooked take I ever taste. Juicy, very juicy. Cook, said Stubb, squaring himself once more. Do you belong to the church? Passed one once in Cape Town, said the old man sullenly. And you have once in your life passed a holy church in Cape Town, where you doubtless overheard a holy parson addressing his hearers as his beloved fellow creatures, have you, Cook? And yet you come here and tell me such a dreadful lie as you did just now, eh? said Stubb. Where do you expect to go to, Cook? Go to bed very soon, he mumbled, half turning as he spoke. Avast! Heave to! I meant when you die, Cook. It's an awful question. Now what's your answer? When this old black man dies, said the negro slowly, changing his whole air and demeanor, he himself won't go nowhere, but some blessed angel will come and fetch him. Fetch him? How? In a coach and four, as they fetched Elijah? And fetch him where? Up there, said Fleece, holding his tongs straight over his head and keeping it there very solemnly. So then, you expect to go up into our main top, do you, Cook, when you are dead? But don't you know the higher you climb, the colder it gets? Main top, eh? Didn't say that at all, said Fleece, again in the sulks.
You set up there, didn't you? And now look yourself and see where your tongs are pointing. But perhaps you expect to get into heaven by crawling through the lubber's hole, Cook. But no, no, Cook, you don't get there, except you go the regular way, round by the rigging. It's a ticklish business, but must be done, or else it's no go. But none of us are in heaven yet. Drop your tongs, Cook, and hear my orders. Do you hear? Hold your hat in one hand and clap the other atop your heart when I'm given my orders, Cook. What, that's your heart there? That's your gizzard. <laughs> aloft, aloft. That's it. Now you have it. Hold it there now and pay attention. All attention, said the old black with both hands placed as desired, vainly wriggling his grizzled head as if to get both ears in front at one and the same time. Well then, Cook, you see this whale steak of yours was so very bad that I have put it out of sight as soon as possible. You see that, don't you? Well, for the future, when you cook another whale steak for my private table here, the capstan, I'll tell you what to do so as not to spoil it by overdoing. Hold the steak in one hand and show a live coal to it with the other. That done, dish it. Do you hear? And now tomorrow, Cook, when we are cutting in the fish, be sure you stand by to get the tips of his fins. Have them put in pickle. As for the ends of the flukes, have them soused, Cook. There, now you may go. But Fleece had hardly got three paces off when he was recalled. Cook, give me cutlets for supper tomorrow night in the midwatch. Do you hear? Away you sail then. Hello, stop. Make a bow before you go. Avast, heaving again. Whale balls for breakfast, don't forget. Wish, by gore. Whale eat him, instead of him eat whale. I'm breast if he ain't more of a shark than Massa Shark himself, muttered the old man, limping away. With which sage ejaculation he went to his hammock. Chapter 65 The Whale as a Dish That mortal man should feed upon the creature that feeds his lamp, and, like Stubb, eat him by his own light, as you may say. This seems so outlandish a thing that one must needs go a little into the history and philosophy of it. It is upon record that three centuries ago the tongue of the right whale was esteemed a great delicacy in France, and commanded large prices there. Also, that in Henry the Eighth's time, a certain cook of the court obtained a handsome reward for inventing an admirable sauce to be eaten with barbecued porpoises, which you remember are a species of whale. Porpoises, indeed, are to this day considered fine eating. The meat is made into balls about the size of billiard balls, and being well-seasoned and spiced might be taken for turtle balls or veal balls. The old monks of Dunfermline were very fond of them. They had a great porpoise grant from the crown. The fact is that among his hunters at least, the whale would by all hands be considered a noble dish, were there not so much of him. But when you come to sit down before a meat pie nearly one hundred feet long, it takes away your appetite. Only the most unprejudiced of men like Stubb nowadays partake of cooked whales, but the Eskimo are not so fastidious. 
We all know how they live upon whales and have rare old vintages of prime old train oil. Zogranda, one of their most famous doctors, recommends strips of blubber for infants as being exceedingly juicy and nourishing. And this reminds me that certain Englishmen, who long ago were accidentally left in Greenland by a whaling vessel, that these men actually lived for several months on the moldy scraps of whales which had been left ashore after trying out the blubber. Among the Dutch whalemen, these scraps are called fritters, which indeed they greatly resemble, being brown and crisp, and smelling something like old Amsterdam housewives' donuts or ollie cooks when fresh. They have such an eatable look that the most self-denying stranger can hardly keep his hands off. But what further deprecates the whale as a civilized dish is his exceeding richness. He is the great prize ox of the sea, too fat to be delicately good. Look at his hump, which would be as fine eating as the buffalo's, which is esteemed a rare dish, were it not such a solid pyramid of fat. But the spermacetti itself, how bland and creamy that is, like the transparent half-jellied white meat of a coconut in the third month of its growth, yet far too rich to supply a substitute for butter. Nevertheless, many whalemen have a method of absorbing it into some other substance and then partaking of it. In the long dry watches of the night, it is a common thing for the seamen to dip their ship biscuit into the huge oil pots and let them fry there a while. Many a good supper have I thus made. In the case of a small sperm whale, the brains are accounted a fine dish. The casket of the skull is broken into with an axe, and the two plump whitish lobes being withdrawn, precisely resembling two large puddings, they are then mixed with flour and cooked into a most delectable mess, in flavor somewhat resembling calf's head, which is quite a dish among some epicures, and everyone knows that some young bucks among the epicures, by continually dining upon calves' brains, by and by get to have a little brains of their own, so as to be able to tell a calf's head from their own heads, which indeed requires uncommon discrimination. And that is the reason why a young buck with an intelligent-looking calf's head before him is somehow one of the saddest sights you can see. The head looks a sort of reproachfully at him with an et tu brute expression. It is not, perhaps, entirely because the whale is so excessively unctuous that landsmen seem to regard the eating of him with abhorrence. That appears to result in some way from the consideration before mentioned, i.e., that a man should eat a newly murdered thing of the sea and eat it too by its own light. But no doubt the first man that ever murdered an ox was regarded as a murderer. Uh, perhaps he was hung, and if he had been put on his trial by oxen, he certainly would have been. And he certainly deserved it, if any murderer does. Go to the meat market of a Saturday night and see the crowds of live bipeds staring up at the long rows of dead quadrupeds. Does not that sight take a tooth out of the cannibal's jaw? 
cannibals, who is not a cannibal? I tell you it will be more tolerable for the Fiji that salted down a lean missionary in his cellar against a coming famine. It will be more tolerable for that provident Fiji, I say, in the day of judgment than for thee, civilized and enlightened gourmand, who nailest geese to the ground and feastest on their bloated livers in thy pâté de foie gras. But Stubb, he eats the whale by its own light, does he? And that is adding insult to injury, is it? Look at your knife handle. There, my civilized and enlightened gourmand, dining off that roast beef, what is that handle made of? What but the bones of the brother of the very ox you are eating? And what do you pick your teeth with after devouring that fat goose? With a feather of the same fowl. And with what quill did the secretary of the Society for the Suppression of Cruelty to Ganders formally indict his circulars? <laughs> it is only within the last month or two that that society passed a resolution to patronize nothing but steel pens. Chapter 66 The Shark Massacre When in the southern fishery, a captured sperm whale, after long and weary toil, is brought alongside late at night, it is not, as a general thing at least, customary to proceed at once to the business of cutting him in, for that business is an exceedingly laborious one, is not very soon completed, and requires all hands to set about it. Therefore the common usage is to take in all sail, lash the helm a lee, and then send everyone below to his hammock till daylight, with the reservation that until that time anchor watches shall be kept, that is, two and two for an hour, each couple. The crew in rotation shall mount the deck to see that all goes well. But sometimes, especially upon the line in the Pacific, this plan will not answer at all, because such incalculable hosts of sharks gather round the moored carcass that were he left so for six hours, say, on a stretch, little more than the skeleton would be visible by morning. In most other parts of the ocean, however, where these fish do not so largely abound, their wondrous voracity can be at times considerably diminished by vigorously stirring them up with sharp whaling spades, a procedure notwithstanding which in some instances only seems to tickle them into still greater activity. But it was not thus in the present case with the Piquod's sharks, though, to be sure, any man unaccustomed to such sights... To have looked over her side that night would have almost thought the whole round sea was one huge cheese, and those sharks the maggots in it. Nevertheless, upon Stubb setting the anchor watch after his supper was concluded, and when accordingly Quickwag and a forecastle seaman came on deck, no small excitement was created among the sharks, for immediately suspending the cutting stages over the side and lowering three lanterns so that they cast long gleams of light over the turbid sea, these two mariners, darting their long whaling spades, kept up an incessant murdering of the sharks. There is a footnote here. The whaling spade used for cutting in is made of the very best steel, is about the bigness of a man's spread hand, and in general shape corresponds to the garden implement after which it is named. 
only its sides are perfectly flat, and its upper end considerably narrower than the lower. This weapon is always kept as sharp as possible, and when being used is occasionally honed, just like a razor. In its socket a stiff pole, from twenty to thirty feet long, is inserted for a handle. Back to the main text, and we will retreat a few words to get the sense of the sentence. These two mariners, darting their long whaling spades, kept up an incessant murdering of the sharks by striking the keen steel deep into their skulls, seemingly their only vital part. But in the foamy confusion of their mixed and struggling hosts, the marksmen could not always hit their marks, and this brought about new revelations of the incredible ferocity of the foe. They viciously snapped not only at each other's disembowelments, but like flexible bows bent round and bit their own, till those entrails seemed swallowed over and over again by the same mouth, to be oppositely voided by the gaping wound. Nor was this all. It was unsafe to meddle with the corpses and ghosts of these creatures. A sort of generic or pantheistic vitality seemed to lurk in their very joints and bones, after what might be called the individual life had departed. Killed and hoisted on deck for the sake of his skin, one of these sharks almost took poor Queequeg's hand off when he tried to shut down the dead lid of his murderous jaw. Queequeg no care what god made him shark, said the savage, agonizingly lifting his hand up and down. Whether Fiji god or Nantucket god, but to god what made shark must be one damn engine.